Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started this evening, and it's good to see you all tonight. Sorry for the uh, change of venue, but we didn't want um, to pass our diseases on to the rest of you. And it, actually, it is called hand, foot, and mouth disease, so it is literally a disease that the kids have. So, uh, so anyway, so we moved over here, and this works out great. I even like it because I have a stage, and I can look down on you, so this makes me feel like I'm an authority. So, Okay, Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll be at tonight. Matthew chapter 6, and tonight we'll finish up the Lord's Prayer with the final, fifth and final petition of that, and then we'll move on next week uh, back through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 9. It says this, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to be together tonight, Lord, together uh, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we pray that... Uh, as we meet and as we study the scriptures, Lord, that you would uh, give to us uh, understanding. Lord, grant to us a greater degree of faith. Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray that you would be with us in all things. And Lord, especially we pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from, from all evil. Lord, that you would keep us from temptation. And Lord, when you do design for us to enter into temptation, Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength, Lord, the power that we need, the faith, Lord, to resist the evil one, and Lord, to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by faith. So, Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing, and so we pray that you would fill us with all good things, Lord, that we might do those things that are pleasing to you, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we are here in the Lord's Prayer, and this will be the, fa- the, the final petition uh, of the Lord's Prayer. And we remember that the first two petitions dealt with uh, the glory of God and the kingdom of God, right? That God's name would be hallowed or that his name would be glorified uh, on the earth. And then also that his kingdom would come on the earth and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then the third petition turned to uh, prayer for us, right? Petitions in relation to what we need, both for this present life and for the life to come, for our spiritual needs. Uh, the third petition is a bridge between uh, these two, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, daily bread, we need it in two regards, right? Certainly we need daily bread for our physical life, but we're also taught by Jesus in Matthew 4, 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That we need God to feed us in both ways, both our physical life and we need him to feed us with his word for the sake of our spiritual life. And so even in the third commandment or the third petition, which does have a physical component, it is not completely bereft or absent of the spiritual, but it also contains that which is spiritual. Then the fourth petition that we looked at last time and this final one, both have to do with spiritual needs and both of them have to do with sin right with sin and in that we are taught that sin is the greatest need right overcoming sin deliverance from sin forgiveness of sin right our greatest need is always in relationship and reference to sin 
And we have to understand that, right? This has to be key in our understanding for the Christian life. Otherwise, we're not going to understand and we're not going to do those things that are pleasing to God, right? This is why, uh, this is how we're able to endure hardships, afflictions, and sufferings. Uh, because we know that it is through suffering that God causes us to triumph over sin. And God's chief concern for us in this life is not our happiness, right? It's not our comfort. It's not pleasure. It's not any of those things. It's not our safety. His chief concern for us is our sanctification, that we would overcome sin. And God knows how to discipline his children so that they are able to overcome and have increasing victory over sin. And one of the means he uses to do that is through suffering, right? So we will suffer, but primarily we need to be delivered from sin, right? Because this is our greatest need. A couple of passages in relation to this. First is Isaiah chapter 59. Why is it that sin is our greatest need? Overcoming sin. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Right there, it is our iniquities that separate us from God. It is our sin that causes God to hide his face from us so that he does not hear us. God does not answer us, right? The prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He will not hear. He will not listen. Not that God doesn't hear it in the sense that he's unaware of it. He will not hear it in a favorable way. He will not give to them what they need because God is their enemy. They're not a child of his and they have no right to come to him and ask for these things. And what is it that brings this separation between man and God? It is sin, right? It is our sin. It is our iniquity. It's not our poverty, right? It's not our hunger. It's not our thirst. It's not our suffering, right? It's not sickness. None of these things make a separation between us and our God. Actually, for the Christian, many of these things draw us closer to God. But sin makes a separation between us and God. And we'll see this Sunday morning, Psalm 37, verse 4. What is the greatest delight? that we can have in this present life and in the life to come. The greatest possession, the greatest treasure that we can obtain and possess is the Lord himself, right? The Lord is our treasure. Well, the wicked, those who are in their sin, they don't have access to God. They do not have God as their father and they don't have him as the treasure, the greatest treasure uh, that they need. Also, Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 18 Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. Verse 20, right? The separation between us and God is indicative of the guilt and the penalty of sin that lies on a person. Ezekiel 18, 20, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So the person who sins will die, will die. He'll die physically, but he'll die the second death 
which is in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. So sin is our greatest need. And that's why these final two petitions are for forgiveness of sins and deliverance from sin, right? That's what he's teaching us to pray for. Forgive us of our sins. When we do sin against you, God, forgive us of those sins. But then also as we go forward, we don't want to sin against you. So we pray that you would deliver us, that you would give us the strength so that we don't sin against you. Now, again, in this, the way the prayer builds, right, we ought to see these things, this need, and how desperate we are for it. But if we cannot so much as provide daily bread for ourselves apart from God, then how are any of us going to provide the forgiveness of sins on our own? How are any of us going to deliver ourselves from Satan, from the world, from the flesh, right, from sin? Right? It's impossible for us to deliver ourselves from the penalty and power of sin. Only God can do this. And that's what the prayer is teaching us. We need God. We desperately need God to give us everything. Right? Everything. And the prayer is showing us this. If God's name is going to be glorified, who has to do it? God. If his kingdom is going to come on this earth, who must do it? God. If we're going to eat our daily bread, who has to feed us? God. If our sins are going to be forgiven... Who must forgive them? God. And if we're going to be delivered from evil, it is God who must deliver us. He is the only one who has the power to do so. Right? The penalty of sin is death. Right? And it is through the forgiveness of sins that we saw last time that we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that delivers us from the penalty of sin. That is why we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, forgive us of our sins. But not only do we have the penalty of sin, there still remains the power of sin, right? The power of sin that remains upon us through temptation to sin, right? This is here today. For unbelievers, they are completely under the power of sin. Sin exercises, Satan exercises a tyranny over the unbeliever so that he is unable, it is impossible for him to please God, right? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible for them to please God. The natural man cannot even understand the things of the spirit of God, right? Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So the unbeliever is under the tyranny of sin. They are completely controlled. They are slaves to sin. They are slaves to the devil, to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's see this. In 1 John chapter 5. 1 John. In chapter 5. Verse 18. 1 John chapter 5 verse 18. It says, We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, we'll have to stop there momentarily because we know that when he says this, he doesn't mean sinless perfection. He cannot mean sinless perfection because he's already said in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we do not sin, what are we? He says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. He doesn't mean sinless perfection, but he means it in the sense of the tyranny of sin. Right, that we're completely slaves to sin and that we practice sin. Right? No one who practices sin is of God, but he is of 
the devil. That's the way that he means it here, right? No one born of God sins as his practice, right? As his, the way and the manner of his life. Because the one who is born of God keeps him. Christ keeps us so that we don't do those types of things. And the evil one doesn't touch him. Not that the evil one doesn't tempt him. Of course he does that. But he doesn't touch him to condemn him, to destroy him. He doesn't have the power to do that to the saints anymore. Then verse 19. We know that we are of God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So we are of God. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The world, meaning this world system, everything about the world, but also the people of the world, the wicked, right? Those who are citizens of this world, that's primarily who he's talking about. All of them lie under the power of the evil one. Satan exercises a dominion or power over them through sin, through temptation to sin. They're unable to resist it. They don't have the ability because the only way a person can resist sin is by the spirit, by the power of the spirit, but they don't have the spirit. Therefore, Satan exercises this type of tyranny over them and they're unable to do anything that is pleasing to God. This would be like Romans chapter three, verses nine to 20, when he says, no one is righteous, no, not one, right? No one in their natural state. But then for the believer, for the believer, we're not under the power of sin as an unbeliever. Satan is not a ruler over us. We've been set free. We've been converted. We've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. So Satan is not our ruler or master anymore. We belong to another. We have a new ruler, a new master. And who is our new master? Him who has been raised from the dead, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we are not under slavery to sin. This is the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, right? And sometimes you'll hear people talk in this way about Christians. Well, we're no better than other men. We better be better than other men because if we're not better than other men, then we're not believers because there is a difference between the righteous and the wicked. Now, we're not better than other men by our own strength. Of course not, but we are by the miracle of God. We are by the power of God. We are not what we used to be. We have been converted. We have been transformed so that we are able to produce some good fruit, not perfect good fruit, but some good fruit. And we grow in our good fruit. We're sanctified over the course of our life so that we walk more and more in newness of life and our life conforms more to the image of Christ. This is our sanctification. But in this life, while we're being sanctified, there still remains the remnant of sin. So in this life, the believer has a twofold nature, right? He has the spiritual, he is the inner man is new, but he also has the outer man that is old and that is passing away. And the inner man and the outer man or the spirit and the flesh, these two are at war with one another and that war takes place within us, right? Within our heart, within our mind, within our life each and every day. When we walk by the spirit, we do those things that are pleasing to God. But when the flesh masters us or it gains a temporary mastery over us, 
then we do those things that are displeasing to God and we grieve the Holy Spirit of God who is within us, right? So in this life, the believer will continue to have to fight against sin. And this is by the design of God. God has designed that our salvation would come not uh, at once, but it would come in degrees, right? It would come from one step to the next. So we have our salvation now, but we don't have it in its perfect, complete form. We're still waiting for that. And God designs that from our conversion to our death, there is going to remain the flesh that remains a part of us that will never be completely eliminated from the believer. And then we have to fight against it. We have to wage war against the flesh. That's why he's telling us to pray this prayer. If we didn't have the flesh, then we wouldn't need to pray this. If we were sinlessly perfect, then why would we, he be telling his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? The reason we have to pray this is because sin remains a reality for the believer. The flesh remains a reality for the believer, and we have to fight against these things, and we can only fight by the power of God. Right. Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Verses 21 to 25. Romans 7, 21 says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So there is the two natures, right? It's clear, it's obvious. There is the principle that evil is present with me, even when I want to do good, right? I want to do good. But I find it to be a law or a principle that evil lies close at hand, right? It is always there with me. I joyfully concur with the law of God. Where? In my inner man. But in my outer man, I see a different law in my members, the body, an outer man, a different law that's waging war against this inner man that delights in the law of God. The outer man hates the law of God. The inner man loves the law of God. And these two are at war. And this war will remain in us through the time of our sojourning. So get used to it, right? Get used to it, pull up your bootstraps, right? Put on your, your armor for battle and you have to get into the fight, right? This is the Christian life. We are soldiers of Christ. We are called to wage war and we are called to fight. And we have to be proactive about this or we're never gonna make any progress in the Christian life. This is the basis for the partition. As believers, we're still in the midst of the battle, and that's why we're praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the presence of sin, and deliver us from the power of sin. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 26. 
Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? That's, that's what we talked about earlier in 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Right? No one who sins. He means it in this way. No one who makes a practice of sinning. Right? Not that a believer may not have a temporary setback, a momentary failure, but not a 20-year failure. Right. Right? Not a practice of failing in that way. He's overcoming. He's fighting. He wants to overcome his sin. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So there, the Spirit and the flesh. The deeds of the flesh, the fruits of the Spirit. These two are in odds, in opposition with one another. And where does the flesh remain? It's in us. That means within us, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for the rest of our life, we will carry about within us an enemy that wants us to go to hell, that wants to destroy us. So we have to take this seriously. Right? This is why people, they want, they want easy breezy Christianity. They want casual Christianity. And the reason they want that is because they do not understand the nature of sin. They don't understand the seriousness of sin. They don't understand the danger of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they just want someone to pat them on the back and tell them that we're all going to make it to heaven one day. But it is a hard and narrow way that leads to life, isn't it? And doesn't Jesus say there are few who find it? The broad way leads to destruction. And those who go therein are very many. It's easy to go to hell. It's very difficult to go to heaven because we have to fight. We have to fight against sin so he teaches us then to pray in this way right lead us not into temptation here the prayer is really in two parts yeah. lead us not into temptation first we should pray to god lord don't even let me be tempted right i don't even want to be tempted i don't want to be bothered by sin at all so lead us not into temptation right the, though we know temptations are going to happen it's impossible to avoid we should still pray that God would deliver us from all temptation, that we would never be tempted again, that, that we would be delivered and that we would not be led into temptation. So even though temptations to sin are sure to come, we should still pray, Lord, every day, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Don't let me be tempted in these various ways, especially when we know our own weaknesses. Right? If there's a weakness we have, then Lord, deliver me from this and don't let me be tempted. Don't let sin have the mastery over me. Don't let me fail in these things. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 1. 
says he said to his disciples, it is inevitable, inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. So stumbling blocks, he says, are sure to come. Right? Temptations to sin are sure to come. They're going to come, but that doesn't mean that we should desire them. That doesn't mean that we should seek them out. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray, God, lead us not into temptation. No, that's what we should pray. And then when they do come, give us the power to overcome these things. Now, here we might ask, why are we saying to God, right? Isn't that who we're praying to? In what way does God lead us into temptation, right? Because James chapter 1, God is not tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one with evil. But God is never the active tempter whenever we are tempted to sin. The immediate tempter is either the world, the flesh, or the devil. Some combination of those three. Many times all three of them present together. But overriding this, in control of all this, is who? Who is the one that's in control of everything? So ultimately, when we are tempted to sin, it comes to us from the hand of God. God is the one who either delivers us or brings us into temptation, right? God is the one who does that. That's why we're praying for God to lead us not into temptation. Not that we're saying God is evil or that God is the active source of our sin. Of course, that's never the case. And also, when God does lead us into temptation, it's not for evil, right? Satan means it for evil, but God means it for good. This is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Right? When Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this salvation. Right? Your intentions were evil toward me. Jealousy, anger, right? rivalry, murder. That's what they had in their heart. But overarching, overriding their sin and evil was the hand of God, the providence of God, who was sending Joseph to Egypt through their evil and all the evils committed to him there, being sold into slavery in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him, him being unjustly, wrongfully imprisoned, right? All of those things were sins that were committed against Joseph. Not like even the one forgot about him, right? He didn't, the, the cupbearer of the king, he forgot about Joseph and didn't remember him and say something to Pharaoh about how he was unjustly treated. So in that way, Joseph was sinned against many times. But who was the one using all of that sin to bring about his greater purpose? God. And God's purpose was for good, was for good. And this is the same with us. Ultimately, when we enter into temptation, it is by the will of God. But God does it for our good in order to test us, to try us, to test our faith, and to stretch us. Now, you may remember a couple of years ago that, and we almost just skipped this petition altogether because the Pope said that this, he changed this prayer. Did you know that? The, pro, the Pope, the poop, we should, whatever we want to call him, the poopy Pope, he changed this prayer uh, so that it doesn't say, lead us not into temptation. It says, God, do not let us be led into temptation because he said God would never lead anyone into temptation. Now, on whose authority does he change the Bible? Yeah, not on God's. He does it by the devil because he is the Antichrist. He is an Antichrist and he is under the influence of the devil and that whole Roman Catholic Church is a demonic, evil church, right? An evil church. And lest we forget, it is still 
the largest Christian church in the world. The largest Christian church in the world is a false church. So why would we be surprised in our area that there would be many false prophets, that there would be many false churches? This, and how long has it been a corrupt, de deranged church? Thousands of years, right? For many, many years, over a thousand years that this has been the case. So the Pope doesn't have the authority to change the Bible. And the Bible says, lead us not into temptation. And the person we're talking to in this prayer is who? It's God. God, you don't lead us into temptation. So it's this understanding, Jesus rightly understands and is rightly teaching, that even temptation is under the control of God. Even temptation is under the sovereignty and under the authority of God. Satan is not acting independently of God. Amen. He is controlled by God. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but who holds his chain? God does, and God sends him wherever he wants. Contrary, so much for free will, right? So much for free will. What about Satan's free will? He doesn't have free will. God controls him, and he does God's bidding for him. Though he does it for evil, God turns it and uses it for good. A couple of passages to show this. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job 1, and let's read verse 6 to 12. Job 1, verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. <laughs> Speaking of false teachers, there's another uh, professor. I'll try to find this video, and I'll share it with you guys, where he talks about Satan in the Old Testament not being an evil spirit, but actually a messenger of God. That's the way. Anyway, every time I read these things, I think about all these people out there saying all this nonsense that's false teaching. And this guy was teaching in a Baptist seminary up until a couple of years ago. One that fired Ishwar and Mudliar, but had this guy on staff teaching people that Satan wasn't an evil spirit until the New Testament, until the book of Revelation. Everyone had a positive view of Satan before then. He's a complete idiot. Okay, chapter 1, verse 6. When I saw Satan, he calls it hot Satan. Hot Satan. Okay, anyway. Then the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Notice that. Who brings Job up in the conversation? Who brings Job up to the attention of Satan? God does. God is the one that brings him up. Have you taken notice of my servant Job? Right? He's putting him in his face. Then Satan answered, The Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So God brought him up, and then Satan made the challenge. The only reason he serves you is because you've given him all these blessings. And so God says, take them, okay, take them away from him. Only you can't do this. 
Notice that. He can only do what God allows him to do. Right? He can't do contrary. He can only go as far as God allows him to go. Okay, then also chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Notice that. Who incited God against Job? Satan. Satan incited. Not that Satan was forcing God to do something, but God permitted it. God allowed Satan to do that. He took the challenge. He said, okay, do it. And let's see. Let's test him and let's see and prove what kind of a man Job is. And Job proved himself to be a worthy man, right? A blameless man. And so God is bringing that up. Even though you incited me against him, ultimately, who's the one that's doing it then? God. God's the one who's taking it away through Satan. Satan is the agent. He's the secondary means. God is the primary means of all things. Okay, on we go. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So now you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. You can't kill him, but you can afflict him with severe disease and sickness, and that's what happened. Then if we go over to chapter 42, Job chapter 42, verse 10, Job 42:10, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. They consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. So they console him because of the adversities, the evil, God brought on him. God did it, ultimately, through Satan. But Satan wasn't acting independent of God. He was being used by God. So that's why we pray, ultimately, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So we should pray that we would not be tempted to sin. Right? And if we are tempted, that we would not sin against God. Now also in this, we, we pray these things, but we also we have to live according to this. We shouldn't lead ourselves into temptation either. Right? And many times we are tempted to sin because of stupidity, because of foolishness, because we're not living wisely. We put ourselves in situations where we're going to be around people. Isn't it true that bad company corrupts good morals? Bad company corrupts good morals. So don't be around bad company, and they're not going to corrupt your good morals. So when we put ourselves in bad situations where there's going to be temptations to sin, that is very unwise. We can't pray... Lord, lead us not into temptation, and then go and go to places, seedy uh, establishments, these kinds of uh, bars, places where people are getting drunk, where there's lewd women doing all sorts of things, and then say, God, why didn't you deliver me from sin? Why, I committed sin. Why didn't you deliver me? Why did you lead me into this? No, we can't do that. We have to be wise. 
just as Job was. He made a covenant with his eyes. How then could he gaze at a young maiden? He says in Job 31.1. He made a covenant with his eyes that he would not gaze at a young maiden, at a virgin, a young, beautiful woman, so that he would not be tempted to lust, to lust in his heart. Also, that shows, did people in the Old Testament know that the law had to do with the heart? Yeah. Well, certainly Job did, didn't he? Job did. He knew and understood these things. And Job, according to most scholars, lived before Moses. Before Moses, Job knew and understood that adultery was sin and that lust was sin and that he wasn't going to gaze at a young uh, maiden or a virgin. Also, what about Proverbs chapter 7? Proverbs chapter 7, the way of the fool and the way of the wise. Proverbs 7, verse 6 says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive, and discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. This being the adulterous woman, the young, naive man who lacks sense, the fool. He doesn't avoid her house. He walks, well, you know, it's, it's a, a couple extra blocks to go around. Uh, so I'm just going to walk. It's quicker. It's closer. But he does it intentionally so that he can see her. And then she seduces him and traps him and leads him to hell. He's a fool because he did that. Then also verse 24. 24. He says, now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let her heart turn aside. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. So there he says, Don't let your heart go go that way and don't turn down her path. Stay away from her as far away as you can. If you know she's that way, go the opposite way. Whatever it takes. That's like Jesus saying, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Okay, you have to walk an extra mile to avoid her house. Isn't it better to walk an extra mile and go to heaven than to be save that amount of time and go to hell? Absolutely. That's what Jesus is teaching. So, first then, don't let us be tempted to sin. We should pray this every morning. Lord, lead me not into temptation. But then, when we are tempted to sin, what should we pray Temptations are sure to come. So, Lord, when I do enter into temptation, then deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. Give me the strength. Give me the power. Give me the grace I need to overcome temptation so that I don't sin against you. Because that should be the ultimate desire, the goal of the true believer. Amen. I don't want to sin against God. So don't let me be tempted. And if I am tempted, give me the power to overcome that temptation so that I don't sin against God, who is my father, against Jesus, who is my Christ, and against the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of me, that we would not grieve the father, the son, or the spirit. And in this, is it not a recognition of our need that we can do nothing apart from the will of God, apart from the power of and strength of God Almighty. Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. 
Jesus taught his disciples this, not only in the Lord's Prayer, but also in the day-to-day -day ministry. Luke 22:31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Isn't that like Job? Yeah. It's the same. Who's Satan asking permission of? God. Satan asks permission from God to sift Peter like wheat. And does God grant it to him? He grants him the power to tempt him, but not to destroy him. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. So here, the failure in part of Peter is when Christ announces to him that Satan wants to sift him like wheat and that Jesus is praying for him, Peter immediately pronounces his loyalty. Oh, I'll never do that. I'll never, I would never renounce you. I'll never deny you. Instead of crying out to God for help, Lord, help me. If this is the case, then help me, deliver me from my adversary, from my enemy. He doesn't do that at all. Then also chapter 22, verse 39. It says, and he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's the same as here. Lead us not into temptation. And we threw from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there, they don't have the strength. They fail. They're not praying that they would be delivered because the spirit is willing in them, but their flesh is weak. Their flesh is weak, and they fail to pray. And then what happens to all of them? They all scatter like sheep, right? When the shepherd is struck, they all scatter like sheep because they were not depending on the power of God. But self-reliance, Peter pronouncing it, and the rest of them as well, will never, right? We'll follow you all the way to death. Even if we have to die, we will die with you, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing. John chapter 15, verse five. So we need God to deliver us from evil. Now evil, three sources, three sources of evil. One internal and two that are external, right? This is the way temptation and sin comes to us. We have an internal enemy, and then we have external enemies, and all of them are conspiring against us so that we commit sins against God and that we would be destroyed, okay? But we've got to fight. We have to fight against them. The internal is the flesh, right? The flesh. We read about that earlier from Romans chapter 7, 21 to 25. Let's look also at Romans chapter 7, 14 to 20. We carry within us the remnants of the flesh until the day that we die. And this is our body, the body of sin that we still have that will be ultimately destroyed and transformed 
on the day of resurrection. And then we'll be giving a spiritual body that can no longer sin. Right? We won't sin in heaven. So we won't have free will in heaven either. Right? We don't have free will on earth and we won't have free will in heaven. Right? Because we cannot sin in heaven. You know there's actually some Armenians who say that we will be able to sin in heaven. Because you have to if you hold the free will. If you can't love God truly unless you have the ability to sin against him, then in heaven we have to have the ability to sin against him. This is how insane people are in their beliefs. Okay, Romans seven fourteen. I'm all fired up about these false teachers because Denny was talking about them on Sunday, you know, so I'm just trying to keep it going. The Roman Catholics, these uh, Arminians, they're all, they're all over the place. Romans chapter 7, verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells within me. So there, it's the sin. The sin, the remaining remnant of sin that dwells within him that keeps him from doing the good that he wants. Right? Not completely, right? He does do it sometimes, but not perfectly. Right? That's the obedience we want to offer to God, is perfect obedience, but we're unable to give that to God now because of remaining sin, indwelling sin that remains within us. Also, while we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Chapter 8, verse 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are, no, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there again, spirit and flesh. So we have the flesh that remains within us. And that is a source of temptation within us. We have this pull within us from the flesh to commit sins against God, to do things that are not pleasing to God. And we have to remember that Adam and Eve, when they fell originally, they didn't have the flesh. They were created perfect, and they still fell into sin. We have the flesh, so how are we going to be able to overcome sin? If they couldn't do it through their own strength, how can we do it through ours? Impossible. Only by the power of the Spirit of God will we be able to overcome. So anyone who thinks he stands better take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. So there is the flesh, which is an internal enemy, a source of evil within us, pulling us to sin. Then there are two external sources of temptation. The first one is the world, right? The world, this present world, Babylon the Great, the world system, right? The pleasures of this life, the desires of this life, the riches of this world, all of the things 
that this world has to offer. And much of what the world has to offer is evil and sinful. Evil and sinful. 1 John chapter 2. First John 2. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So there, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. All of these things are from the world, and they are sources of temptations for us. Isn't that the case with the seed that fell among the thorns? Why is it that that seed was choked out? What choked it out? The pleasures and riches of this life. The possessions of this life choked out the seed, the beginnings of faith in that person, so that he produced no good fruit. And this will be the case here as well. The pleasures, the riches, the possessions, all of the things in this world are allurements to get us to sin against God. And we have to overcome the world, right? We have to overcome it by our faith. Faith in what he says right here. What's going to happen to the world? It's all going to be destroyed. It's all passing away. God's going to burn it all up with fire. So why would we desire those things that we know God is going to destroy? We shouldn't do that. And then... The other source, external source, is the devil, right? The devil who tempts us to sin against God. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 verse 14. says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So there, the devil, uh, through fear of death, right, he has the power of death. He needs to be rendered powerless. The power of the devil over us has been broken but there still remains him as a tempter, as a tempter who harasses us, okay? He doesn't rule us, but he still harasses us in this present life, and he is very crafty. That's according to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was the most crafty. He was very crafty in what he does, and just as the serpent deceived Eve, so also the serpent wants to deceive us. And the, the apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he is afraid that they're going to be tempted and that they're going to be overcome by the cunning of the devil, right? The devil is very crafty and he is very cunning in what he uses to conquer and to wage war against the saints. 
And so we have to resist him. We have to be aware. We're not unfamiliar with his ways. We have to be aware that he is there. We have a very real enemy, the devil, who is seeking someone to devour. And we are likened unto sheep. We are sheep, and the devil is a lion, and his false teachers are wolves, ravenous wolves. So what hope does a sheep have against a lion and a ravenous wolf on their own? They need a good shepherd, right? A good shepherd with a club, with a rifle, with a machine gun, whatever he has, who can beat back the wolves and beat back the lions. And this is what God has given us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And through his word, through his word, through the teaching of his word, we are able to overcome the wiles of the devil. We overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil through our faith in the word of God because we're not going to fall to their schemes, right? We're not going to be taken captive, right, to the allurements and pleasures of this world because we know that they're all going to be destroyed. So why would we desire those things seeing that they're headed for the lake of fire? We're not going to be overcome by the adulterous woman of Proverbs chapter 7 because we see by faith that she's going down to hell one day and we don't want to go there with her. So we, we're going to overcome her by our faith in the word of Christ, right? In what God tells us concerning these things. So we need Christ to deliver us. And this is what he does. He gives eternal life and those he gives eternal life to will never perish because no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, right? Everyone who belongs to Christ is held secure by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and this is how we are able to overcome all of our adversaries. And our hope for deliverance from sin, from evil, is that Christ will bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I meant 2 Timothy, sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 16. 2 Timothy 4, 16 says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against him. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So who will do it? The Lord. The Lord will rescue us from every evil deed, whether that be the flesh, the world, the devil, wicked men, whoever it is, he will save us from every evil deed and safely bring us into his heavenly kingdom. That is our only hope. Yeah. And that's why we are called to pray so fervently to God for all of these things.